just begun his public ministry. Remember, this is, this is about 30 years. He's about 30 years old. And so after 30 years of preparation or just waiting, essentially waiting as we heard at the beginning for the word of the Lord to come to John the Baptist before he could go out and, and do his ministry, the word of God had to come to him so that he could share the words of God for the ministry that he was gonna proclaim, not his own words, but the words that God was giving to him. So he's been out preparing in the wilderness for 30 years, and then, um, at least according to Luke, some of the first words that we hear of his public ministry are this. Nothing like we would experience today. No, uh, good morning, welcome, we're so glad you're here. Come on in, come on in. I've got some really enlightening, fun stuff that I wanna share with you. you know, I think we're gonna have a really great experience this morning. Just cut right to the chase. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Brood of vipers is a family of snake. It's a, it's a venomous, poisonous snake. And, uh, and, and the Israelites would have, would have almost certainly connected that statement with, with John calling them Satan, essentially, you know, because the serpent was cursed to the ground, and, and so you know, snakes are, are constantly a, a picture of Satan, and so he's basically calling them, you family of Satan. Come on in, I got some lighthearted fun stuff I wanna share with you. You know, John, John cut right to the chase. I want to kind of focus, we're going to, we're going to jump through a lot of this. I'm not going to cover this in any justifiable way today. There's really far too much here that I, I just can't cover it all in detail and keep you uh, awake at the same time. So I just encourage you to, to go back and read it and study it on your own in this coming week. There's a lot you can look up if you use some of the resources that are free online like BibleStudyTools.com as a great one. Uh, you can see a lot of the cross-references. Bible Gateway, you can see a lot of cross-references and, and things like that if you're using the right versions. And just a lot of great information that can kind of help you see and get a bigger picture of what the Bible teaches on these topics, especially verses 15 through 18. We're not gonna spend a lot of time there today, so if you wanna know a lot more about that, then I would encourage you to dig into that this week. Read it a bunch of times. Let it saturate your minds and uh, just kind of meditate on it and, and invest investigate it, dig into it, see what is there for you to learn, and uh, be happy to have you come back next week and just tell me what you learned this week as you studied that set of uh, verses. But remember, um, God has been silent for 430 years, so it was 400 years when the announcement came to John the Baptist's parents, that was Zechariah, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth got the announcement, and then Mary got the announcement of the angels, but God had not spoken to his people through a prophet for 400 years, and now they're 30 years old, so it's been 430 years since God has spoken, and now John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness or out of his silence after God had given him the command to start speaking, and he starts sharing his message of repentance and baptizing people for repentance. 30 years, think about that. I'm 38 years old, so it was when I was eight. Would have been how long? I mean, eight years old. The world has changed dramatically since I was eight years old. 
30 years ago, can you imagine waiting 30 years to, you get, you get a, a, an announcement from God saying, you're going to do this, or this is going to be a part of your life, or in this case, to parents, and parents growing old and probably not even living because they were so old. Remember Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were so old when they had John the Baptist, they probably didn't live to see John the Baptist's ministry. So can you imagine living through the expectation and the waiting of something you know is going to happen, something that has been promised? even as clear as it was in the promise, it still took 30 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And just kind of a little introductory note, this isn't really what we're going to spend our time on this morning, but I, I think we probably can take a lesson from that in itself, that we, we should probably get a little bit better at being patient and waiting on God. We have a tendency, don't we, to we pray something and then if that prayer request is not met in the immediate future, then we start to question whether God actually exists. Maybe I'm the only one that's done that. I don't know if, I don't know if you've done that. But you, know, you pray something, and, and you're sure that God is going to answer this prayer, and, and you pray, and you wait, and you wait for you know, a couple, I mean, really long days and you wait, and just after, you know, just after a week, you just, you just start to think, God must not love me. Or maybe God isn't even, God isn't even real. I just, I think if God was real, then he would give me what I want right now. But here, I mean, I don't know if when you've prayed, you've ever had an angel come and give you the answer to your prayer. But that's what we have here. We, we have an answer to prayer in a visible form through an angel, through, through God sending an angel to, to speak, and still they had to wait for 30 years. I think we, we probably all need to get a little bit better at waiting when it comes to what we ask God to do for us and what he calls us to do. Because what God has given you to do, he may have a lot of work to prepare you for. What God has given us to do, there may be a lot of work that goes into the wilderness training like we talked about last week to make us ready for the ministry that he's called us to. And you can see that here based on the content of John's message, what he shared. If, it, if John was not in, a, in a, a very solid place in his relationship with God and his understanding of God, his truth that he had received about who God was and, and what he was calling him to do, and this was the message that God gave him, can you imagine if you didn't have that foundation and you didn't have the experience that you needed and then you have to go out and say this to people? A lot of us probably wouldn't fare too well if this was the message that God gave us for today. If God spoke to you in a dream tonight and said, I want you to go say this to your coworkers, you brood of vipers, you family of Satan, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Please don't hear me say that I'm telling you to go say that. <laughs> that is not what I want you to hear. So maybe we should just get a little bit better at waiting. But I think kind of a big thrust of, this, of John's teaching can be found in verses 8 and 9. And I want to share those with you. I want to dig into those a little bit, and we'll cover verse 10 through 14 as well in a little better detail. But verse 8 and 9, uh, this, this is John's message. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Axe is one of my favorite illustrations. For one, it's one of the instruments that's used in Scripture, so you can get a picture of it. Uh, this is Henry's axe, got it for him for his birthday last year. We used it to make the cross on our Monday, Thursday service right before Easter, and that was kind of where we broke it in. But, you know, we've talked about a lot of things with the axe, about sharpening the axe, that sometimes that for us to become sharpened instruments of God, we have to go through a little bit of adversity, and it takes just some pain and some suffering and, and some grit to be able to be sharpened to a place where we're be, being used by God. But, but the axe is, is, is also a part of this symbol of of being at the, at the base of the tree, at the root of the tree. They're gonna cut it down at the root if it doesn't start producing fruit. And if you've driven through uh, California any time in the last probably five or 10 years and after they've suffered the effects of the drought that they've been going through, and I, this is just my opinion, but the stupidity of planting trees out in the middle of the desert, like almond trees, you know, Planting, planting an almond tree out in the middle of the desert that takes two gallons of water to produce a single almond, and so one tree produces thousands of almonds, so it just takes ridiculous amounts of water to produce almonds, and so where would you think would be the best place to plant an almond tree? Naturally, in the place where there is no water ever, right? I mean, that just makes perfect logical sense. So, um, but if you've driven through there, you know because they've had to greatly restrict access to water that there are fields of dead trees because they haven't received the water that they need to survive. And so some of them, as you drive, you can see they're still standing and just need to be cut down. Others have been cut off at the root. Why? Because they're useless. Because they're not producing any fruit. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's not, it's not any kind of fruit. You know, like we kind of understand this when it comes to nature. An apple tree produces apples, right? We know that. That makes sense. A strawberry plant produces strawberries. Raspberries grow on raspberry trees. We know that the kind of, of plant that it is is actually the fruit that it produces, and so if we are going to learn kind of uh, from, from John's lesson to prepare us for Jesus' lesson, which is how John the Baptist was coming, we need to make sure that we're in a place where, where we are producing the fruit that we're supposed to be producing. The fruit that is in keeping with repentance, as John is going to say, the, the fruit that is consistent with the kind of tree that we are becoming. Otherwise, what good is the tree? Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. As John says, the ax is already at the root of the trees. Well, what's he getting at here? He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our, as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Remember, Abraham was the one who received the initial promise for all of God's chosen people that, that God would produce the family of God through Abraham and his children would outnumber the stars. And you know, so that was where the, the promise originated that those who were a part of the, the uh, kingdom of Israel would be claiming but he says, don't say, don't, don't say about yourselves that Abraham is our father. It's very interesting that, that the, the people who are living the, the, the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham are the ones receiving the message, don't say that about yourselves. 
That should kind of raise a red flag to us. Why is John saying this to to the people who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, I think there are some very important things that, that we can draw from his statement. I think he's saying that um, the Israelites are not entitled to God's salvation simply because they were descendants of Abraham. You know, they would have been raised and grown up in the thinking that salvation is in our bloodline because we are the descendants of Abraham, and so we will be saved because we are God's chosen people. He has created us. But what does John say? He says, he says, you know, to fulfill the promise of Abraham, God can turn stones, can raise up children out of these stones to fulfill the promise. So, so maybe you shouldn't claim to that promise as the only thing that is keeping you close to God and salvation. Maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something more than just being the descendants of Abraham, which when we read that, we can see the type of tree that they are. And if you are this type of tree, then you ought to produce this type of fruit. If you are the descendants of Abraham, then you ought to live in this kind of a way. And this is going to be very important for us as we continue on and we start to study in Jesus' life and who Jesus was because we are now heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself. That means that we are descendants of Jesus Christ through our salvation. So if we are this type of tree, if we are the type of tree that Christ is, then what kind of fruit should we produce? What is this fruit that is in keeping with repentance? First, I want to address something. I want, I want us to be clear on what repentance is. It's not enough to simply be sorrowful about the wrongs we have done. And I think that might be some of the confusion that creeps into our minds when it comes to repentance, that, that we think we can simply be sad about the wrong things that we have done, but leave it at that. You know, we've all made some mistakes, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I'm sad about that. But, but that's kind of as far as a lot of us get when it comes to producing fruit. Sorrow is important. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I don't have this one for you on the screen, so just let me read it for you. But Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow is is a step towards repentance. And repentance leads to salvation. And this leaves no regret in us. Worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance, if you look up the definition of repentance, it means a change of mind. It means to turn away and to turn towards something. It means turning away from what you were pointed out and turning towards what God has for you. Turning away from your life and turning towards the life that God has and worshiping him alone. Repentance means to change your mind. So sorrow, godly sorrow, will lead us oftentimes to a place where we're going to change our minds. But that doesn't mean that we actually repent through sorrow alone. We have to actually take the step of repenting turning away from and turning towards God. The sorrow that we feel should lead us to repent, to have a change of mind, to turn from those things that we have done, to bring sorrow and to turn us towards God. 
Godly sorrow will lead us to God's salvation. And then when we are found in God, there is no room for regret, only rejoicing. No room for regret, only rejoicing. Worldly sorrow leaves regret. Worldly sorrow leads us to death. Godly sorrow leads us to rejoicing. We will find in this encounter that John the Baptist has with these people, three different groups of people, and they all ask the same question. John calls them a family of snakes and says that you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and then the different groups ask this question, what should we do then? Some translations say, how now shall we live? When God speaks to us, then what we need to ask is this question. When, when God says to us and, and maybe confronts us or the Bible teaches us that, that we're living contrary to, to his word and his plan, then our response should be, okay, so I'm not supposed to do this, but how am I supposed to live then as a result of this? In other words, I'm not this kind of tree. I'm this kind of tree. What kind of fruit am I supposed to be producing in my life? What is the fruit I'm looking for? More on that later. The three groups, though, in this, in this passage are the multitudes, the tax collectors, and the Roman soldiers. The multitudes are the first group that ask the question, then the tax collectors and the Roman soldiers. The multitudes, he gives this advice to when they ask the question, what should we do then? He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. We are going to uh, put this, give us an opportunity to put this into practice, and next Sunday, um, if you have an extra coat, an extra shirt, maybe you have some food that you could do away with and, and share, we just ask you to bring it next Sunday. We're going to call it Two Coats Sunday. That's, a, that's one of the things that Jesus taught. If you have two, two coats, give, give one away to someone. A lot of us probably have 15, 20 coats in our closet, we could probably get rid of one and, and give it to someone who needs it. But this is, the first, this is the first command that is given, or the first response that is given to the question, how should we live? What should we do? If you have two shirts, then share it with the one who has none. If you have food, share it with those who don't have any food. This is, this is the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. The next group were the tax collectors. And they asked this question, what should we do? How should we live? They told them, don't collect any more than you're required to. If you know anything about the tax collectors, you know that's a very big statement that he's making. Tax collectors had a, a very big reputation for taking advantage of, of the people. They would, they would charge the tax that they were required to pay, and then they would charge sometimes double or more that they were supposed to require to pocket that for themselves. But John says, don't, don't do that. Just because you're a tax collector and you can require people to do it doesn't mean you should do that. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Don't take any more than you're required to. And then the Roman soldiers, which some commentaries suggest could also represent the Gentiles. They were certainly Gentile men, most likely, that that were working with Roman authorities, and they were there in the crowd, maybe just to try to keep peace, maybe they had been drawn, who knows really why they were there, but 
they were there listening to John speak and they were obviously drawn into the message that John was sharing. And so they asked this question, what should we do then? And John's response to them was, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, and be content with your pay. Don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, and be content with your pay. Those are some things that are pretty, uh, pretty normal today, aren't they? I don't know about the extorting money. I don't know how many of us do that on a regular basis. If you do, then don't. There's your, there's your, uh, your application for the day. But we accuse people falsely all the time, don't we? we kinda, that's kind of the norm, and it's the standard for our, our world that we live in. It's just false accusations everywhere all the time. We like to gossip and we like to kind of dream up the scenarios and, and we you know, kind of create all these elaborate schemes and conspiracies and things that, that are happening and we accuse people of being against us or being against God or against Christianity or against one political party or another. We, we accuse people of all of these ill things and we maybe need to pay a little closer attention that that's not really what we're supposed to be doing. I think because at the root of that is just the assumption and the worst of all humanity. We seem to assume the absolute worst in people and that is what we, what we put on them as a result, that this is who you are because we see it in other people or we've seen you do one thing that causes us to question who you are and so this must really be who you are when no one's watching and so we accuse people or we shouldn't accuse people falsely. And this is, this is straight out of the Old Testament, the covenant, the old covenant that God had, the, the moral law that actually still applies to us today. Be content with your pay. And for us as believers, that's actually a very important lesson for us to understand that, that God has given us exactly what we need to live. God has provided for all of our needs according to his riches. He has provided for us, like we have talked about so many times, better than the lilies of the field and the birds of the air who God provides for, and they have nothing like we have. We have an abundance. We, we really need to learn to be content with what God has given us. We, we should not covet what other people have. We should not covet the salaries that we hear other people have. We should not covet the possessions that we see other people have, and we should not covet the cars that we see people pull into the parking lot with or the, the toys that people get to play with throughout the summer months when they're actually able to be outdoors in the Northwest. We, we shouldn't covet, and the reason I think coveting is, is such an offense, it's such an offense to God, is because at the bottom of it, it is saying, I don't trust you, I don't believe that you actually have your best in mind for me, and you haven't given me what I need, and I actually think you love them more than you love me, and so I'm coveting what they have because I don't trust what God has done for me, and that's a problem. Do we really trust God to provide for us? Or are we accusing him of not providing what we need? This is the fruit of keeping with repentance. And as I was reading this and studying it, it just kind of stood out to me that it's actually very much in keeping with who we are as a church. What is the fruit in keeping with repentance? It's doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Where do we see doing justice in these verses? Well, 
what, was, what is unjust would be collecting more money than you're, re, you're required to collect. That's unjust. That's not right. Or like the soldiers, extorting people for money. That's, that's, that's not right. Or it's not right to accuse people falsely. That's not right. That's unjust. Don't, don't do that. Don't live in that way. Do what's right. Live rightly. We also see mercy in here. That we're supposed to be a people that, that love mercy. If you have two shirts, share one with one who doesn't have any. If you have extra food, share it with someone who doesn't have it. And even it's very interesting in this passage, it doesn't say extra food. It just says if you have food, share it. We're supposed to walk humbly. We're supposed to be content. We're supposed to walk humbly with our God. I'm going to get into walking humbly just a little bit more because it really ties in to this whole idea. But doing justice is living and doing what's right. That's, that's how we define it here. It's looking at a situation and using the truth that God has laid out for us in his word, what is the right thing to do in this situation, and then doing it. Or it's looking at our lives and, and how we're supposed to live our lives. And the way that we live our lives, are we living rightly according to what God has laid out for us to live? Or are we living by our own standards? To love mercy, it's to love showing kindness. It's not to just be compassionate and kind, but it's to love the act of compassion and kindness, to be kind and to love doing so. Not to do so out of guilt, but to do so out of an abundance of love. And walking humbly with your God, it's not just being content, but it's making much of Jesus. It's like John the Baptist would actually say in John chapter 3, Verse 30, he would say, Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. This is what it means to walk humbly with God, to make much of Jesus. And he's confronting this head on here with the people who had come out because they weren't walking humbly with God. They were probably walking proudly, maybe even arrogantly, claiming that Abraham is our father. But John said, don't, don't say to yourselves that Abraham is your father. Because God can raise up children for the promise of Abraham out of these stones. We must walk humbly with our God. See, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's not only what John the Baptist says, but we can hear the same thing from Jesus in John chapter 15 when he's talking about the vine and the branches And we need to be very careful not to allow our comfortable lives to turn into entitlement in God's kingdom. I think we see a strong sense of entitlement in Israel when Jesus and John the Baptist were doing their ministry. We need to be careful that we don't allow our comfort to become entitlement. Entitlement is a very dangerous drug. It's very, very luring, and it can really sink its teeth into us deeply. One of the churches that we were at, I won't mention the name of the church, but uh, our small group was doing a project, and you know, we kind of were doing this thing with uh, Rick, Rick Warren, 40 Days in the Word, and if you have been at any churches where they did the 40 days things, 40 days of purpose, 40 days of community, 40 days in the Word were some of the ones that they did. You know, almost all of them had a mission project that was attached 
to the 40 days journey that they did there at the church. And so this, we were you know, kind of given the task of coming up with a missions project that you could do as a small group together and, and, and facilitate it. And uh, we had on our, in our small group was uh, also the children's minister at the church. And they were very passionate about caring for special needs children and special needs family in the church and had created a lot of special programming for special needs families. And it was a really great, great ministry that uh, the church was providing and just gave kind of a solace, a safe place for parents to bring those uh, special needs kids that might be a little harder and, and, and a little harder to deal with than most church uh, ministries are trained to deal with. And so we, we decided we were going to do a dinner for the parents. And if you, if you have kids, you know it's kind of challenging to get out, to go out to dinner. And if you have a special needs child, then you know that it's even more challenging because it's hard to find someone that can meet the needs of your child while you're gone. And so oftentimes the parents of special needs kids don't get to go out. And so, so we put on a dinner at the church and, and we, were, you know, we were just catering to them. We were serving them food. All of our small group was kind of bringing out the food and, and bringing out the different courses and all of that. And, and uh, we were doing photography at the time. And so, so we took all of the couples out and, and took uh, just pictures of the couple to give them a, a picture of them as the two of them or the, the mom or the dad or whatever the case may be. And this thing happened, though, that while we were walking from where we were having the dinner out to where we were taking the pictures outdoors, you know, we would talk to the, to the parents, and, and so many of the parents, so don't, don't hear an overcharacterization of this, so many of the parents were just, just so grateful so thankful that, that we were doing this for them. And, and that was the overwhelming sense that we took. But there were, there were several that had a different attitude. And you know, you, you do your best to kind of handle it with, with grace and not really pass, you know, not really care about it. But, but there are words that kind of stick with you. And of course, these, I don't know if they're believers or not, but, but the, the comments we got from a few of the couples were, you should be doing this for us. More churches need to do this kind of stuff for special needs families. This is, this is something that, that we deserve. And I just kind of left, left that, that experience honestly quite sour. I was just sour that, I mean, here we had, I mean, we had invested our own money, right? We had paid our own money for, for this meal. We didn't charge them anything for it. We, we did all of the work to reach out and find the families and invite them, and we served them, and, and we did all of these things over and above what anything we were required to do, and the response we got was, you should. You, you really ought to be doing this for us. And it really, I mean, it didn't just sting, but it, it just kind of has stuck with me, and I think it's stuck with me because it's so easy for us to get that way. I mean, when we live in a world where so much is so easy to get, and it's just, we just live in a world of abundance, and, and it's easy for us to get our hands on anything we could possibly desire, it's easy to get entitled and to start thinking that we deserve I am entitled to this. this. This is something that you should do. And the danger, the very, very dangerous place we get is when we get close to what the Israelites were living and maybe experiencing and speaking is that we start to think that God should do this for us. You know what, God? I deserve for you to send your son to die. Let 
But we're supposed to be overwhelmed with gratitude. We're we're supposed to be overflowing with thankfulness that God would give us this gift of grace. We, We get so dangerously close, I think, in our culture today and in the church culture in our world today that we think God should do this for us. Of course God should die for me. It's a bird on the roof. Why, why wouldn't he? I'm a good guy. Of course God should die for me. But entitlement is actually the opposite of God's gift of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, for it is by grace you have been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And listen, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. See, entitlement is the opposite of humility. Walking humbly with God is saying, you know what, I am so thankful. I I have nothing to boast about in my own abilities to achieve this. The only boasting I have is like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not going to boast about ourselves and our accomplishments and our riches and our successes and our fame and whatever it is that we think that we have acquired through our own strengths and our own abilities. We need to understand that God has graciously blessed us and placed us and purposefully put us where we are for his own design and his own plan and his own purposes so that we may boast in him all the more. God did not have to save us. But he so generously, so amazingly did. We ought to be astounded by his love. The love of Jesus Christ ought to so overwhelm us that that it radically alters our perspective on everything in life. Walking humbly means we're not entitled, but we are in awe of what God has done. I I was a sinner apart from Christ, and yet he chose to love me. He chose to send his son to die for me, and now he takes that title of sinner, and he puts on it saved. He puts on it son. He puts on it daughter because of what he did, not because of the way that we have lived, but, but because of how he sees his own son, and now he's recreating that image of Christ in each and every one of us. Now he sees you and I, the sons and daughters of the Most High, as wonderful, amazing, blessed creations who are deserving of his love because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We, we have received the gift of God's deserved love. How can that truth not penetrate to the core of who we are and radically alter the way we approach life? I think this morning what we need to do, all of us, myself included, and this should be an ongoing act for each and every one of us, is we need to examine our lives. We need to look at the fruit that is being produced in each and every one of our lives.
We need to take inventory of what's going on in each and every one of us and ask, are our lives producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Or is the axe at the foot of the tree ready to be swung? God will produce in us what he wants to accomplish through us. A lot of times we feel this, we feel this urgency or this need to try to force fruit. And if you know anything about growing trees, you can't force fruit to grow. A lot of times it's just patience and waiting for God to grow up in the tree what needs to be produced. A lot of times there are things that maybe many of us are dealing with in our life that we're sick of dealing with, and yet God is still working to grow up through the root of the tree, through the base of the tree, what we need to be able to produce the right kind of fruit in our life. And so we may be frustrated that we're not where we want to be, and yet God is still actively working in each and every one of our lives to create and produce a tree that is capable of producing the kind of fruit that he wants to see in our lives. But it's good from time to time to look and take an inventory of the kind of fruit that we're producing. Are we producing fruit in keeping with repentance or are we maybe a little bit entitled? Maybe we're throwing blame around. Maybe we're doing a lot of things that we shouldn't be doing and what we need to do is not only be sorrow, sorrowful, let God lead us to sorrow, but let God's sorrow lead us to repentance to change the way we think, to understand what we have received and allow that, the power of God in us, the power of the resurrected Christ in us to produce through our lives the fruit that he wants us to produce. Let's stand together. I ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for us this morning. Before I do so, I just want to, want, to, I want to start with prayer and then ask some questions. But God, I pray that you would examine our hearts. I pray as David prayed that you would search us right now. Look, at, look in each and every one of us at the innermost core of who we are. I pray, Father, that you would search us and reveal to us in these moments those things that need to be done away with. Father, bring up to the forefront of our minds right now those things that are unholy, unrighteous, those things that you want us to deal with. And, and Father, I pray that you would keep them there as we pray and worship and respond. If you're here this morning and throughout this morning as we've been talking about this subject or through this time of prayer, if God has put something on your heart and you would say, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some bad fruit on the branches. There's some stuff growing in my life that, that just needs to be cut off and thrown into the fire. There are some things that that are not in keeping with repentance at all. They just need to be done away with and, and replaced with God's amazing love. If you 
have something in your life, I just ask that you raise your hand this morning. I want to pray for you. Several hands have gone up. Is there something that, that God is saying, do away with this, cut this out. Get it out of your life today. You can put your hands down. As I pray, I just pray that while I pray, that you see in your minds a mental picture of God pouring his grace into you. And as you fill up God's vessel, as you, God's vessel, fill up with God's grace and God's love, that these unrighteous things have no place to go but to float up and out. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who raise their hands, who this morning I trust you have shown, myself you have shown, things that, that need to be done away with. The parts in our lives that are, that are producing fruit that is not that you've desired for us to produce. Father, I pray in this moment that you would fill us now in, in an abundant way to overflowing with your love. That you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power of the Christ who was raised from the dead, the Christ whose name is victory, that you would, through that power, that you would fill us to overflowing with the love and the grace and the truth of God. That you, would, that you would fill us to a point where there is no room left for those things that have taken hold in our lives and that, that those things would be done away with, they would be washed away and that they would be washed away in the blood of the Lamb. That you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That you would remove in us any unpure, unrighteous thing that you don't want to be a part of our lives that you would cleanse us from that once and for all, and that you would lead us now in the direction of you, that you would, as we repent from those things, turn away from them and turn towards you, that you would lead us not only to you, but that as we look more and more to you, we understand that we will also look more and more like you and that we want to resemble you more and more to this world. Father, I pray that as we turn away from more and more things of this life that has grabbed a hold of our souls and our spirits that don't belong in a body and in a soul that is set apart for the kingdom of Christ, that you help us to look each day, each week, more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, not for our benefit, not for our own glory, but that people may see Christ in us and be filled with the hope of their own salvation through the glory of Jesus Christ that is flowing out of our lives as we live for him. Father, turn our eyes, our hearts, our minds away from the things of this world that draw us into selfishness and entitlement, and Father, turn our eyes towards you once and for all, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. We thank you. Thank you for this grace. Overwhelm us now, Father, I pray with gratitude that we may be so overflowing with gratitude that gratitude replaces in us these things and that the world may see through the overwhelming sense of gratitude when we have in our lives how great is our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.